one in one in four women are are leaking regularly and just accepting that that's their new normal. It really doesn't have to be that way. We are going to transform the way that motherhood is viewed, turn the negative narrative that is frequently sold to our society upside down, and resurrect a village of support around new families. The Joy of Becoming Real podcast is all about celebrating the good, the difficult, all of the love, and everything real. We passionately believe that by supporting the mother, you support the child, and by supporting the child, you contribute to the wellness and possibilities for future generations. I'm your host, Julia Wheelock. Hello and welcome. I am here today with someone who I've just met. I'm very excited about meeting you and hearing about what you're doing because I feel like it's such a need in the area. Um, I'm here today with um, Kate Schumacher, who just started a business, Peaceable Pelvis. Um, you're a pelvic floor therapist, correct? Correct. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to kind of talk about what that is, what you do, why there's a need for it. Um, and how you are setting up your business to serve our community. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, it's a delight to be here and I'm excited to finally meet you too. I've heard so much about you awesome. and what you're doing. Oh, good. Good. So tell me like a little bit of, um, first of all, how did you come to start this business? Why did you see a need for it? And then we'll kind of get in a little bit more of like, what is pelvic floor therapy and all of that? Okay. Um, well, when I was a student, um, during one of my clinical rotations, I was fortunate enough to, um, be exposed to pelvic floor therapy, which is, um, it's really a specialty. So for me to see it as a student, that's not actually very common. Okay. And I was really impressed. The pelvic floor therapist was having so much success, just immediate success with her clients. They were yeah. coming back to her saying like, I am no longer leaking. I'm not having pain. Um, in their quality of life was just improving so rapidly. And so that was always in the back of my mind as I started my career, that this was an area that I could be really passionate about. Mm. And then when, when COVID happened, I think we all kind of were rethinking our yeah. careers and our lives and where we wanted them to go. So that was where Peaceable Pelvis was, was born awesome. out of that um, restructuring of, of my life and my career and, and seeing that women in this area were having such a hard time accessing those services. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, we were talking before we hit record about like how COVID just kind of restructured so many jobs, you know, for people and, um, kind of like what a, a weird blessing in disguise that is almost, but, um, so you, what were you doing before you went, were you a pelvic floor therapist before and just decided to go on your own or. So I was working primarily in geriatrics. Um, Pelvic floor therapy is a specialty that you have to pursue training in after college. So even though I had my degree as a therapist, I had to do some additional training. Okay. So I was working in geriatrics and then starting to apply some of those principles of working with the bladder and incontinence yeah. to that clientele, yeah. which is certainly applicable. Um, but then decided that I really wanted to work with postpartum women or even women in who are pregnant and preparing to, to deliver and yeah. how to help them best prepare for that event and yeah. what could unfold afterward. Yeah. I love that. And I feel like that, um, kind of working before there's an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like if we had more of that and more of, you know, um, kind of education about these are some things that could be happening. We all know, like, um, you know, you hear so many like mom jokes about like, oh, I can't jump on the trampoline anymore because I'll just like pee myself. And we kind of laugh about it, you know? Um, and I, I, I didn't even know until fairly recently in the last couple of years that that's not actually normal. Correct. <laughs> it's common. <laughs> and I think that there's, that's important to distinguish what is common and what is normal. It's common to like pee yourself after having a baby. Yeah. It's not normal and doesn't have to be that way. Not normal. Yeah. I think one in one in four women are are leaking yeah. regularly and just accepting that that's their new normal. And yeah. It really doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I think something that's really unfortunate is that um, postpartum, sometimes women aren't having issues right away. So they don't pursue any 
pelvic floor therapy or even think about that area at all. Yeah. But then cumulative damage and not addressing the pelvic floor leads to issues later on in life. Interesting. So is it, is it something that, um, and then maybe we'll go back to the beginning and talk about what, what do you actually do? Um, but is it something that you can kind of come back to, or is it, does it need to be addressed right away? Or does like, does it matter how much time has passed after having a baby that you can address some of the issues that were maybe caused by that? Oh, no, you can address at any time. I work with a lot of uh, middle-aged women who are upset about having bladder leakage and yeah. we're resolving those symptoms pretty, pretty easily and pretty quickly. Wow. But I think it's best to get ahead of it because you can really develop some habits that are hard to reverse. Mm, interesting. Um, I want to hear more about what those habits are. Um, yeah. So tell me like, what, what are you seeing in people? Why should someone see a pelvic floor therapist? Um, and like, what, what issues we, you know, we talked about being yourself as one of them, but there's a lot of other things too. What do you see people for? Sure. Um, so yeah, a lot of bladder leakage. Um, I see women with diastasis recti, um, which is sometimes painful and sometimes just aesthetic. Yeah. I see women with prolapse because to a degree it can be, it can be fixed yeah. without having to have surgery. Yeah. Can you just ex- explain for people what, um, what both of those things are? Sure. So diastasis recti is when the um, abdomen splits down the middle mm-hmm. and hundred percent of women are experiencing that during their pregnancy, yeah. which is an incredible thing that our body can do that for us. It's yeah. like, here, I'm just going to yes. create some I'm just space separate. for you. Yeah. <laughs> which, that is crazy. Know, yeah. I mean, but afterward, it doesn't always resolve. So sometimes we need, we need a little help to get, to get that muscle back together. Yeah. Um, and then prolapse is a few different things can happen. Um, the, the walls of the vaginal canal are weakened. Um, whether that happens on the anterior side where it would let the bladder kind of kind of collapse into the wall of the vaginal canal Mm -hmm. or on the posterior side. So the rectum is kind of protruding into the vaginal wall. Okay. It's not going through, but it's putting pressure. So you're going to start having some bowel or bladder dysfunction because of that. Okay. And it could be really painful to have sex if, if your rectum or your bladder is, is pressing on your vaginal canal. Yeah. That does sound painful. (laughs) Not really enjoyable. Yeah. Um, Um, then other women are coming to me with painful sex, which is also not normal. Yeah. So many women are being cleared by their, their OBGYN at six weeks. So they're expected that they should just be able to resume normal sexual activity and they're having pain, but they think, well, I guess this is how it's going to be now, Yeah. but that's not, not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) No, it's not. And that should never be something that we're normalizing. Just like, I, I don't think that we should be normalizing, you know, peeing after having a bit, like having any kind of incontinence. Um, tell me like what things I'm so interested in that, like, cause I don't think we talk about sex postpartum nearly as much as we should. Cause it's such like, there's so many things that go into all of that. Um, but tell me like what things you're seeing that would cause pain during would it, I mean, you mentioned prolapse could obviously, sure. is there other things too? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the easiest thing is that there's just a lot of dryness. Yeah. Are there, our hormones are, I mean, we're breastfeeding. Yeah. It, we're very dry after, after having a baby. Yeah. Um, so lubricant, sometimes all you need is just some education on the fact that lubricant is your new best friend. Yes. <laughs> Should be always. I yes. Think. Yeah. Time to introduce that into the bedroom. Yeah. But What's really happening is if you think about the group of muscles that we refer to as your pelvic floor, going through the process of birth, that that would be akin to running a marathon and then not stretching afterwards. Yeah. So our pelvic floor after birth is often really tight. Yeah. It's more likely to be tight than it is to be. I think what most women are afraid of is that it's going to be Yeah. Loose. loose. And you don't, I have just learned a little bit about this and it's like, you think it would be the opposite, um, which is so crazy. Cause you know, we hear, I think that's another thing that people kind of joke about a little bit, like, um, you know, that you're just going to be like loosey goosey, (laughs) whatever, but it is the opposite sometimes. And 
I think that's why I want to talk to you about um, Kegels and that kind of like idea of like you just do Kegels. But it's like if you did if you do those and then your issue is actually that you have too tight of a pelvic floor. Right. Then that's not going to help. Right. I think a lot of OBGYNs and I don't I'm not trying to <laughs> villainize the um, OBGYN, but no. they often say, well, just go do some Kegels or yeah, or go have a glass of wine or. Yeah, to relax. We hear that bit. narrative, but uh, Kegels can actually make things worse yeah. if you're tight or if there is a prolapse. Um, that's not necessarily the best thing to do or if you're not doing them correctly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women go about doing a Kegel and what they think that they're supposed to be doing, but are not necessarily uh, engaging the correct muscles mm-hmm. or maybe they're um, tightening the abdomen simultaneously. So then you're just creating this abdominal pressure, yeah, which is not helpful to the pelvic floor. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm curious too. I wouldn't have thought that you um, were also seeing like diastasis because that's not your pelvic floor. How is that connected? Sure. sure. So a lot of pelvic floor therapy, the symptoms that we're seeing are, it's not isolated to the pelvic floor. Yeah. We're looking at the entire, what, what we call the abdominal canister. Mm-hmm. So you have your respiratory diaphragm, which is just above the pelvic floor really. And they yeah. have to mirror each other. Mm-hmm. And then your abs and your back and your obliques. So yeah. everything in that abdominal canister yeah. is maintaining this pressure gradient that directly impacts the pelvic floor. So interesting. It's so if you're having like back issues or something like that, would that affect your pelvic floor? Sure. Or vice versa. Yeah. If you have pelvic floor instability, you could feel it in the back because the back muscles are trying to to add some stability. Yeah. And trying for to, you and like compensate for Yeah, that. it's trying to help you. Yeah. But sometimes you're getting pain and Yeah. Our body is trying to get through life the best way it's can, best way it can. Yeah. So it often comes up with these compensatory strategies that yeah. aren't always helpful in the long run. Yeah. And can cause pain in other ways. But that's so fascinating knowing that because, you know, I think we kind of have like um, a, a lot of like we, we kind of separate issues mm-hmm. and make them like they're, you know, your abs are one issue. Your pelvic floor is one issue. Your mental health is one issue when really a lot of that is just all tied together. Right. You really have to take a whole body approach. Yeah. I usually, when I work with clients, I start with breath work because if your respiratory diaphragm isn't moving the way it's supposed to, then nothing else in your body is really going to be. Yeah. So that's usually where we start women who are pregnant or postpartum. Yeah. I mean, imagine what the diaphragm is doing during pregnancy. It's just yeah. getting shoved right up there. Yeah, it's squashed up. There. Yeah. And you feel it too. Like, it, you know, if you've ever been pregnant or even been around a pregnant woman, you can kind of hear that kind of breathless, mm-hmm. um, you know, your everything really is squashed. Sure. It's amazing what your body does. And if you haven't looked up a um, you know, picture of where all of the organ placement is in a pregnant woman, I would definitely recommend doing that because it, it is really fascinating and amazing how your body adapts, adapts to that. But, um, so what, what are you doing then with, um, pregnant women? What can people be doing to kind of prepare themselves and, um, you know, maybe, um, prevent some of the things that can you prevent these things beforehand or. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, back to the breath work. I can help women to kind of access that diaphragm. It's not going to be moving as much as it as it used to, but yeah. it needs to be moving still. Yeah. We need to make sure that the pelvic floor is going to be able to yield for birth. Mm-hmm. So this is not a time to be tightening the pelvic floor. We yeah. need to make sure that it's responsive and that it can be um, pliable and to give way. Yeah. Um, I have helps women by looking at their alignment. So from head to toe, if you're, if your shoulders are rounded, you have to think, how does that affect the rest of the body? I mean, yeah. so start from the head. We want everything to be in alignment so that when it's time to give birth, 
yeah. that that baby can travel yeah. the way it needs to. Yeah. Um, so we do a lot of body work, a lot of stretching. I like to use yoga. Um, and then I'd like to help women access their pelvic floor. I don't, this might be too much information. <laughs> no, I don't think there's too okay. much. There's no such thing. <laughs> I like to use biofeedback. So that is a different tool that can help women understand how to engage their abdomen while keeping their pelvic floor relaxed. Okay. Because I think if you've never given birth, you're under the assumption that pushing is coming from the pelvic floor. Okay. Yeah. And you need to learn that the pelvic floor just needs to get out of the way. Yeah. And let the muscle of the abdomen. Yeah. To relax the the pelvic floor Mm -hmm. and push. (laughs) Yeah. From From above. Because if you, um, you know, when you're starting to have contractions or even, um, before labor, if you're having Braxton Hicks, you can tell where all of your muscles are tightening and it's from like that. I'm making hand gestures right now that no one can see, (laughs) but it's from like the, the, your ab muscles on top. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and your uterus contracting, which is a muscle, right. Mm -hmm. Um, so your uterus is contracting to push down and out. Right. Right. Um, you're not pushing from the bottom. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, which is, it's fasting when you, when you're not stopping to like, think about it, which how many people actually are, I, I don't know if I did, <laughs> you know, thinking about giving birth for the first time. Um, so it's fascinating. Yeah, it is incredible. I, you know, I think I was in the unique position of going into to birth with all of this knowledge and realizing that most women aren't just really empowered me to believe that this is information that yeah. needs to be shared. Yeah. I think a lot of women are extremely underprepared yeah. for birth, especially during the pandemic yeah. when your classes are online. Yeah. It's not really all that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's hard. It's like, some things are amazing that we can keep them going through like zoom calls or whatever. But I think there's a lot of things that we're missing from not having in person. And I feel like so much of motherhood needs to be in person. Like I was just talking to someone else about, um, this is a a bunny trail a little bit about, um, lactation consultants doing like zoom calls and stuff. And it's like, it's so hard. You need someone sitting not across from you next to you helping, you know, support being there physically. I feel like is is so important. Um, and, Obviously, I think in your field, <laughs> that's important too. Yeah. Um, and you're there. Um, so let's talk about like how you've structured your business because you've structured it in a way that made me really excited, which is you're providing in-home care for, for women. Um, I think that, you know, I, that is my business model is to primarily perform uh, therapy in the home of my clients. And that's where you're most comfortable. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel most comfortable opening up about some of the issues you might be experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go to a clinic and you're not in your own space. The lights are bright. There's people all around and admit to something that you might be feeling embarrassed about. And I wanted to create a space of judgment-free zone. Um, I want to work with my clients in the space that they live. So if I can see them moving through their home, how are you lifting your child? Yeah. How are you doing your chores? Perhaps some of the ways that you're moving your body in your day-to-day life can be modified to make it pain-free Yeah. or to, to be forgiving to your pelvic floor. Yeah. How can we structure the environment to be most conducive to healing, yeah. especially postpartum. Yeah. And that, that clientele, I think, benefits most from having in-home visits. When I was postpartum, it was very hard to get out of the house. Yeah. And if I had to find someone to, to take care of my son, just so I could go see a therapist, I yeah. think that would have been a, a big struggle. And I, I don't want that to be a barrier yeah. to get the care that one needs postpartum. Yeah. I think it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm so passionate about in-home care for, for all of those reasons. And just because, you know, there's so many appointments already that you have to go to for like 
you know, pediatrician appointments and, you know, doctor appointments and stuff. If you're not having a midwife come to your house, um, which is mostly the case. And so when you start adding in like um, all of these other things, like, you know, even chiropractic appointments or therapy appointments, stuff like that, which I think are really needed, but it's like, then you're just going to appointments and it's, you know, caught, it's kind of undoing a lot of the things that we need to be doing, which are resting and, you know, staying home and feeding babies. And, and I think in some cases it can cause more issues than help issues. You know, if you're just like struggling with your mental health and then having to like make all these appointments happen or just are dropping appointments because you can't make them happen. Um, that's just so unfortunate. And I think that, um, that happens a lot to people. So then they're not actually getting the care that they need. So I love seeing people do in home care because that just takes that step out. But then on top of everything else that you mentioned too, like you want to be seeing people in their homes where they're like doing all of their moving and, um, in even resting and, you know, how are they breastfeeding and, you know, all of that, Yeah, which is, um, just so important. So I'm, I'm excited that you've, um, modeled your business that way. Um, but then you also said that you are going to start having the option to have. I do. I do offer some space in Traverse city at, at the box, which is on the corner of eighth street and Boardman. Um, so for women that maybe are out of that fourth trimester, maybe Mm -hmm. they're back to work and they, they want to have a therapy session on their lunch break or Mm -hmm. after work before they go home. So I think that's valuable as well. Yeah. But I do want to have a healthy mix of, of both in home and office visits. Having that option, I think goes so far because then you don't feel like obligated one way or the other to, um, you know, push outside of what your comfort zone is at the, at the time, which can be constantly changing (laughs) because everything else is constantly changing during those um, first couple months, I think, especially. Um, so tell me like, maybe we should have started with this, but let's talk about what is the pelvic floor? Like, is it like you, you hear the word floor and you just think of like an actual floor, <laughs> like, is it, it's not like a flat spot somewhere in your uterus or right. whatever. Right. Um, so let's kind of talk about as, as far as we can, maybe sh- people should look up a little know, diagram yeah. or something to look at while you're, while you're describing it, but let's talk about kind of what is it exactly? Sure. Yeah. I like to carry a, a model pelvis around with me because it is so hard to visualize. Yeah. I mean, if I ask you to show me your bicep muscle, right. it's such an easy muscle to access and then tell yeah. me what it does. Yeah. But the, the pelvic floor is out of sight, out of mind, but to go, you know, I guess if you find your pubic bone and your tailbone mm-hmm. and then your sits bones, mm-hmm. which are those bony prominences that you would be sitting on yeah. if you put your hands under your bottom. So we those do. are the four attachment points mm-hmm. and it's a group of, it depends on which muscles you count, but about 16 muscles that are occupying that space and floor is kind of a misleading word because it's, <laughs> it's more like a hammock. Okay. Or like a bowl. Yeah. And I don't like to use the word floor either because like you said, that assumes something flat yeah. that doesn't move where the pelvic floor is more like a trampoline and it, it needs to be able to, to tighten mm-hmm. and then also to relax. So it's lifting up and relaxing down mm-hmm. and we need that pliability. A healthy pelvic floor has full range of motion and, and it's, serves to support our organs. It serves to allow for elimination and penetration for sexual activity mm-hmm. and it allows for childbirth. So it, it plays a huge role in our, in our health and, yeah. and we often neglect it. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think we neglect it because so many people have never even like heard that term or maybe have only heard it around childbirth or maybe not even that because, you know, I think we do have such a a lack in education around what is your body actually doing when you're giving birth? Um, so when you're giving birth, describe that a little bit and like what your pelvic floor is actually doing. You said before, like, it's important to kind of just get it out of the way, but what does that actually look like in terms of that process? Sure. So 
during birth, the pelvic floor is, we say, relaxing or lowering in order to enable the passage of the baby. Um, so while the uterus is tightening and contracting, the abdomen is contracting, tightening, the pelvic floor actually needs to be doing the opposite. So you, you really sometimes have to direct your mind toward toward the pelvic floor and allowing it to get out of the way because when we're in pain, our immediate response is to tighten yeah, seize, seize up. <laughs> so it really does take a really concentrated effort to, to consider the muscles of the pelvic floor just melting like butter and just getting out of the way, relaxing. Mm. And that's the best way to prevent tears is not to be resisting the contractions that are coming from above. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is what, what do you see if you're not relaxing your pelvic floor and, or even like we talked about before, trying to push with your pelvic floor, what things are you seeing? Is that when, like, would you see a prolapse or something if you were trying to push, you know, just with your pelvic floor yeah. versus your abs and letting your contractions do the work? Sure. You're yeah. You're more likely to see tears and prolapse, um, prolonged labor, um, pushing times of greater than two hours. Oh, wow. That would typically be because, I mean, there are other factors, of course. Yeah. If the, if the baby's coming in at the wrong angle and, yeah. um, you know, there's so many factors to consider. Yeah. But if the pelvic floor isn't getting out of the way, yeah, you're going to end up with possibly some, some issues afterward. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, is there anything that you specifically feel like is missing in terms of education for women and like things that you want to people to specifically know about it? Sure. A couple of things that I would probably talk about is um, for women in the postpartum period, something that I commonly see is urinating frequently because you're so used to doing it during pregnancy. During pregnancy, we have that pressure on our bladder. Yeah. And so we're going to the bathroom multiple, <laughs> multiple times an hour sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but the normal amount of time to go is two to three hours before okay. you need to urinate. Your bladder has that capacity. Yeah. But if you continue that habit of going frequently, you establish this habit where your bladder, despite not being full, expects you to empty it. Yeah. Frequently. Interesting. Which can lead to incontinence later on. Yeah. So I encourage women to try to stretch out the time. You don't have to go from every 30 minutes to every two hours yeah. overnight. Yeah. But when you get that urge to urinate, consider how long has it been? Yeah. And then to tell your bladder, we're going to wait a little while. Yeah. Because you ultimately have control over your bladder. Yeah. So sometimes it just needs to be told that it needs to wait. Yeah. When we're working, when we're out of the house, you forget about your bladder and you go hours at a time. Yeah. But when we're home in that postpartum period, as soon as you get the urge to urinate, mm -hmm. well, I guess I might as well go to the bathroom. Yeah. So then you start to establish those habits that are not so great in the long run. So fascinating. This is really interesting. This is the first time I've heard this. And, um, we were talking, you know, before we were recording about how I didn't know up until like maybe the last couple of years, even about pelvic floor therapy outside of like my midwife telling me to do Kegels, like we talked about, um, which again, isn't like the best thing to do always. But, um, so I didn't struggle with like, I wouldn't say it was incontinence, but I, you know, if I was like, if I sneezed, maybe you'll disagree and maybe it was incontinence, but if I sneezed or like coughed or something unexpectedly, if I knew that it was coming, I could like, you know, use those muscles to keep everything in. <laughs> but if it was unexpected, I would a lot of times, you know, have some leaking. Um, and so just my, I didn't do any research on it or anything. And I didn't know about pelvic floor therapy at the time. Um, my just intuitive, what I decided to do to try and like help rebuild those muscles or like tell them what to do again was if I had to pee, I would just wait like maybe even five or 10 minutes in the beginning. And that kind of did help like remind me to like, oh, I can like hold it in, you know, and, and now I don't have an issue with that. Um, but that's really interesting hearing you say that because um, 
you do get in the habit of, of going pee. And I think I wonder if another thing of it, um, another aspect is that I felt like when I was postpartum, I was so, and even when I was pregnant, I was so like so much more in tune with all of the little twitches and, you know, things that your body are, is doing. Um, so I would just, you know, immediately respond, um, because I was like, okay, what's, what is happening? Especially like we were talking to that, um, my firstborn was, um, born two weeks past his due date. And especially during that time, you know, leading up to my postpartum, I was so in tune with, you know, every little, little, um, you know, cramp or whatever. I was like, oh, is, is labor starting? <laughs> you know, so I was really hopping on all of those symptoms. So, um, that was something interesting to kind of untrain myself of like not having to like jump at every little twinge that I was having, you know? Sure. And then no peeing just in case. Yeah. I mean, we, oh yeah, especially at night, I'm still breastfeeding and he's getting up at night. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're up. So might as well go to the bathroom just yeah. in case. Yeah. But then, you know, if, if that habit continues, he'll be done breastfeeding. He'll be done getting up during the night, but I'll still be getting up to go to the bathroom. Interesting. And it's not normal for a woman of childbearing age to need to go to the bathroom at night. That shouldn't happen until you're postmenopausal. So, so trying to avoid that just in case peeing is, yeah. is really important. Yeah. I think I do that still. So I'm going to have to, um, like catch myself on that because, you know, I, I have a two and a half year old and a four year old. They're still waking me up at, <laughs> at night sometimes. And if I come upstairs, I'm like, I don't want anything else waking me up. So if I feel like I have to pee at all, it's like, I'll just go because I don't want to have to wake up at you know, five o'clock in the morning to have to go right. and come upstairs. So, um, that's an interesting point too. One thing I also like to tell women in the postpartum period is, um, baby wearing, is such a huge thing and it's mm-hmm. so great for maternal mental health, mm-hmm. but you can start baby wearing too soon. Yeah. If your pelvic floor isn't ready for that, you know, you really need to be monitoring. Are you feeling heaviness down there? Is your pelvic floor ready for that weight again? Yeah. Because that would be akin to taking that baby that you just birthed and putting it right. Yeah. Back. Cause <laughs> it's, I mean, it's still in that same spot, mm-hmm. especially if you have like a a Moby wrap or a Solly wrap or something like that, which is tying around like your lower, um, like around your hips, basically mm-hmm. where your bladder is. You could really do more damage than, than your pelvic floor is, is ready to, ready to accompany at that point. Mm-hmm. If it's still recovering from this huge marathon of giving birth, mm-hmm. it, it may not be ready to yeah. have that weight right back on it again. Yeah. That's interesting. I was just talking with um, a client about baby wearing, Um, and we were talking about like, when can, when can I start doing that? And I was like, really, there's no like official when, when you can, like the baby can be worn at any time by anyone. Like it doesn't have to have, unless that there's an issue, you know? Um, but I was like, I wouldn't recommend to a new mom to be baby wearing because really you should be in bed. (laughs) If you have the baby on you, you should be lying down and, Mm -hmm. you know, holding it, not walking around doing housework and whatever, you know, that you would need to be baby wearing. But that's an interesting um, um, thing too, that you can actually damage. Um, the housework can wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like it can't, I know. <laughs> but uh, I think that's, that's, you know, when we can talk about like how important it is just to set yourself up with help and a support system that is kind of taking over some of those things. So you, don't feel like you have to be doing all of these things. Um, is, is there like, um, do you have recommendations for people that you're working with to like do certain exercises or wait for certain exercises or, um, do like wait for certain, I mean, obviously in the first maybe like month or so you don't do any of those things, but you can, so this is kind of a, a catch 22 is that you can do Kegels pretty much immediately um, postpartum, but that is to say that you're doing them correctly. Yeah. So if there's any question whether or not you're, you're activating the correct muscles, then it's best just not to do it and to wait until you can be assessed and to to have it determined that you truly are doing them correctly. Um, I usually am just encouraging some really gentle stretching 
And you can do some um, like heel slides and just some like really gentle core engagement. Yeah. And just, you know, just gentle, be kind to your body. You've just went through so much. And to give yourself that time to recover, not jumping right back into maybe, yeah. maybe what you used to be able to do and, and just give yourself grace yeah, and allow for that recovery to happen slowly and correctly. Yeah. I think that's very, very good advice. Um, let's talk to about like, so you mentioned, um, diastasis is one of the things and how all of that works together is so fascinating. Um, what things can you do to prevent diastasis happening while you're pregnant or can you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess a hundred percent of women are experiencing that at some point during pregnancy. Right. Which is normal. And that's just because there's no, I think if you are someone who tends to grip your abs, which a lot of women do. Um, what do you mean by like, just like sucking your stomach? Yes. So many women are walking around sucking their stomachs all the time because we live in this society that promotes flat bellies. Yeah. So, so many women are gripping. Um, so if that can be worked on prior to pregnancy, um, I was one of the women that people were like, oh, I couldn't even tell you were pregnant for so long. It's yeah. Like, well, I was gripping. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, which is why you sometimes after the first pregnancy, you see that those abs give way sooner the second time around okay. because they've been through it already and they, yeah. they know what they're supposed to do this yes. time around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, generally it's something that you work on afterward. Okay. But, um, just being grateful that our body has the tools to, to allow for that growth. Yeah. And, um, then we can get in and start doing some gentle core work afterward to help those muscles come back together. Yeah. And I think I, I just like, I don't know a ton about diastasis, but I know my midwife told me when I was pregnant, Um, it was our first prenatal together and I was, uh, you know, just laying on a bed, um, while she was, you know, palpating and, um, checking the heartbeat and all of that. And then I went to sit up, um, and I just sat up like, um, straight from, Mm -hmm. from a lying down position, just, you know, sat forward. And she was like, no, (laughs) never do that again. (laughs) And I was like, what? I don't know what I did. What did I do? I just sat up and she's like, no, you have to roll to your side. Mm get up using, I don't know, what are these muscles called on your side? You have your obliques and then you also have your transverse abdominals. Okay. So you're, you're using those side muscles, not like your Rectus six pack abdominals. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. To, to sit up. And she said that that was really important to, um, not be engaging those in that way. Also postpartum the same. I was supposed to, um, you know, get up from, with those side muscles and your log rolling. Yep. Yep. And engaging your larger muscle groups, um, lifting with your glutes. Mm-hmm. So many women are pregnant and also caring for a toddler. Yeah. And that child still needs to be lifted and yeah. cared for. And, um, if you're not engaging the large muscle groups and putting strain on the abdomen. Yeah. So I guess when you look at it that way, there's a lot you can do by modifying yeah. the way you do things. Yeah. And that's like, like you talked about lifting a toddler. If you're like squatting is one of the best things you can do for, for labor. Your pelvic floor. Yeah. And for like going into labor and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that deep squatting. I remember um, I didn't really exercise a lot um, when I was pregnant or ever really. <laughs> um, I mean, I used to, and I was, you know, before I got married basically. Um, but I remember like I was cleaning out underneath my sink, um, when I was pregnant. Cause I went, you know, I went past my due date for so long. I was like nesting like crazy and just like going insane, cleaning everything. Um, but I would like, and so I wouldn't be on my knees. I'd be like, okay, this is my time to like get that deep squat in. So I'd just be, you know, squatting and cleaning you know, the bathroom or under the sink or whatever I was doing. Um, and that kind of, that habit kind of stuck with me actually. We're now <clears throat> when I'm on the floor, like, you know, 
to with my toddlers or whatever, like having to bend down and wipe a face off or whatever. Um, I'll more gravitate towards that kind of deep squat than I would towards like going on my knees or something like that, which um, is kind of an interesting habit that I've noticed that I got myself into because I heard that it was good going in, you know, going into labor. Um, your back is so happy that you're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So just kind of doing like little lifestyle switches like that, I think is something that, um, you know, I, it wasn't like a really hard thing. You know, you might have to kind of remind yourself to do it here and there, but, um, yeah, it wasn't that hard to get into that habit. Yeah. And which is goes back to why I like seeing people in their homes. I can troubleshoot some of those things. Yeah. Um, if I see someone in the clinic and ask them, well, how are you doing this? Sometimes they might not necessarily even be aware of how they're doing. Yeah. Something. It's just mass muscle memory. Mm-hmm. You like, you don't, you can't really think back on like, how am I, you know, getting on a, <laughs> a ground level in my, yeah. Squatting or going on my sure. knees or what? How am I, how am I lifting my child onto the changing table or yeah. anything? Or carrying car seats. I wonder if that's something that you huge help educate people on because car seats are so, so weird to carry. Um, Extremely awkward. Yeah. If you have any pelvic instability to carry something that heavy on one side of your body can do so much damage. Yeah. How do you recommend that people uh, carry car seats? As close to your body as possible. Um, I like to, it's it's kind of hard to explain over. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But to loop the hand and arm through the carrier and grab the other side. Okay. And then to carry in front of you. Yeah. So that you're not. So it's not just one side or the other. Right. Yeah. And that, um, that's something, another reason why I love that you're offering in home care because it, it's so like lifting such a heavy thing as a car seat. Um, you know, especially once, you know, your partner's gone back to work, you don't typically, you know, a lot of people don't have extra hands to come, you know, help and stuff. And if you do, I highly recommend, you know, asking like your mom or your mother-in-law or your sister or some, someone to come and help you because you should not be lifting anything heavier than your baby. Right. In that first, at least six weeks, but until your bleeding has fully stopped is, is, was my recommendation. And that's what I, you know, recommend to clients. Correct. And in that six week mark, it's just such a benchmark that we apply to everyone and it's not yeah. always accurate depending yeah. on the circumstances. Yeah. I, I, I get so enraged <laughs> with the six week. So do I, <laughs> we're on the same page there. And I think that, um, I've been, I think that there's more education now around what, what happens at six weeks. Why is that just our magical number that you're just cleared to go back to everything and now you can have sex and now you can exercise and all these things. Um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. What, what enrages you about that? Well, first of all, I think we talked about this a little earlier and how you go to your six week appointment and then you're expected to come home that evening and you're a okay to have sex with your husband and it's going to feel great. And if it doesn't, well, you know, maybe it will eventually, but just keep doing it. Mm. So that's, really disconcerting to hear that women are having that experience. Yeah. But then the return to exercise, you know, you're basically cleared for activity, but no one really talks about what that activity looks like. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't suggest jumping on your road bike and going for a 20 mile. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't suggest going for a run. Yeah. Um, you really have to ease into it and make sure you're engaging all your muscle groups appropriately. Yeah. That your breathing is, is effective. There's a lot more to it than just leaving that doctor's office and putting on your sneakers and yeah, going to a CrossFit class. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know then. Like, I feel like a lot of people feel lost and like, well, what do I do? Like, who do I see to tell me when it's okay to do these things? Like, do I just, you know, I think there's the factor too, that we are missing a lot in like listening to your body and being able to read your body and know what's normal, what's not normal, you know, and in normal, not common, like we talked about before, there's a lot of like, you know, it's common to have pain with intercourse, but it's not normal and should not ever be made to be normal. But, you know, but then you're like, you know, talking to 
mom friends and other people who have had these experiences. So you're like, well, it was, you know, it happened to them too. So it must just be normal and it'll fix itself or not fix itself at some point. So I think having that education to know what's, um, you know, normal versus common, um, can, can go a long ways too, hopefully so that people aren't just coming back from that six week appointment, which really doesn't mean anything. And it's so dependent on, did you have any tearing? Did you have any stitches from that tearing? Like what was your, you know, birth like, let's talk about, um, C-sections a little bit. Cause I think that we have this perception of like, you only need to see a pelvic floor therapist if you've had a vaginal birth. Um, but really there's so many things like happening throughout your whole pregnancy that's putting pressure on your pelvic floor, um, not just the delivery itself. Right. Right. Um, if you think about your pelvic floor is accommodating this growing baby throughout your pregnancy and it's growing gradually. Mm-hmm. And then in a matter of minutes, that weight is ripped from your body yeah. and your pelvic floor is responding regardless of whether the baby has exited your body via C-section or through a vaginal delivery. Yeah. So the pelvic floor is going to respond. It's going to, it's going to um, typically become tight. Mm-hmm. Like we discussed earlier mm-hmm. because it's trying to seek stability. It's trying to stabilize the body. The abdomen yeah. is totally taken out of the equation yeah. for a while. Yeah. So the pelvic floor is, is part of that abdominal canister that we were talking about earlier. And yeah. it's going to try to compensate for that, that insult to, to the abdomen. Yeah. So you do still see the same symptoms, mm-hmm. um, that heaviness, maybe leakage, um, pain mm-hmm. in those those people are in need of services too. Yeah. And that whole um, narrative of C-section not being birth is yeah. just such a misnomer. It's, yeah. If the baby's outside of your body, when it you was at birth. one point inside your body, <laughs> you gave birth. Yes. <laughs> right. And you you are worthy of services too. And you shouldn't yeah. have to experience pain or leakage or any other possible symptom that could result. Yeah. Yeah, and you are going to benefit from a really um, mindful return to activities, possibly even more so. I mean, yeah. what a major surgery you just went through. Yeah, that we have like zero respect for or follow up for, or it's it's just insane how we see how we treat both. Like, um, you know, even tearing. I think it, there's just there's no follow up, even if you've had stitches. I had to have. Um, it was at the beginning of COVID, actually. Um, I cut my finger, I cut a tendon in my finger and I had to go have, um, you know, I went to urgent care and got stitches, um, and then didn't find out until later that I had to have surgery because my tendon was cut, um, just terrible. So then I had to go have surgery, um, in my, um, you know, it was when everything was shut down and, but I still had to go to, um, therapy, um, physical therapy for my finger to be able to like move that joint and everything. Um, and I went to therapy for weeks, like months. It might have been like a few months even that I was, you know, going once a week. And then when you um, you know, juxtapose that to if you get stitches or after your birth, um, there's zero follow-up. There's zero therapy. Like they there's zero like education around what do I do with that scar tissue? What, you know, should I be touching it? Should I be leaving it alone? Like um, and same with uh, C-section. I think maybe there's a little bit more dialogue around how to, you know, work with a C-section scarring. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, like next next to nothing, I think. And it's just so crazy how we. Um, this is kind of a little bit of a rant, but it's like my experience with my finger, which you know, fingers are important, but not more so than, um, you know. <laughs> any, any other part that's going to have, have an issue, you know, from giving birth in, in any way, whether C-section or vaginally, um, it's just so crazy how there's like this disconnect there or something. Um, yeah. Your tear doesn't just end with stitches. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to consider the scar tissue that is going to, to occur subsequently and sometimes worse than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can really cause a lot of pain. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, immediately after birth, if 
you have a tear and require stitches, you may not even really be totally aware of what's going on because you're just so in that moment of meeting your newborn and, yeah. and then trying to deal with the postpartum period and you sometimes forget and maybe six months down the road are having a lot of pain with sex and aren't putting two and two together that yeah. there's a ton of scar tissue from that injury. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and especially because like no one is tracking it. No one's telling you that you should be tracking it. Right. And it's not like, I mean, you should be focused on your, you know, your newborn when you're first meeting them for the first time. But I feel like someone needs to be there kind of holding that accountable, you know, for you and giving you that education. Is that something that you work with clients with? Um, like when you're seeing a scar tissue and stuff like Definitely. that? Um, what, what thing, like, what are your recommendations around that? I know that it probably depends on like the degree of tearing and where the tear is at and everything, but sure. how do you work with, um, when you see tears and, and stuff like that? So like you said that there is some education around a C-section scar and usually the management of a scar is really some like very gentle mobilization of that scar tissue. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like on the skin is taking two fingers and some oil and just yeah. kind of rubbing in all directions gently. Mm -hmm. You can do the same thing with, with scar tissue um, from a tear. Yeah. And some people are more comfortable with that than others. Mm -hmm. And you can also ask your partner to help. Yeah. And just listening to your body and doing what feels good to you. Yeah. And like what feels good to your body. Cause it shouldn't hurt. Like it might be uncomfortable. Right. But right. it shouldn't be painful. Correct. Um, and I think at that point, if it were, if I were one of my clients, I'd probably say go see a pelvic floor therapist to get that second opinion of like, what can I do so that it's not painful, even in trying to like, you know, fix it. Um, at what point do you recommend that people start doing that? It, let's say for, um, you know, like a vaginal tear, um, if they've had stitches at what point would they want to start, um, like massaging or mobilizing the tissue? Like yeah. So if there's any bleeding happening, I would say, you know, just leave the area alone. Yeah. So typically once bleeding has resolved. Like vaginal bleeding or bleeding from the tear? Both. Both. Yeah. yeah. Just give your body some time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to time get through. But yeah, usually around that six week mark. Yeah. <laughs> back to there that it six is again. <laughs> is, is when most are considering it appropriate to begin. Okay. But that's, that might be something that good that because each person, I mean, like a fourth degree tear is going to heal at a different rate than like a first degree or a second yeah, degree tear. Right. So way different. Yeah. That might be something good to specifically maybe even write down. So you don't forget about it when you go to that six week appointment to specifically ask about when can I, you know, start working on this and stuff. Um, another thing I just learned this again from like having finger surgery, they talked a lot about how important it is to be constantly just touching that new, um, you know, tissue that's, um, you know, healed, um, for the sensation because it's new. So it'll be more sensitive. Um, so I'm just constant, like I'm still constantly fidgeting with my finger. Um, and it does feel, you know, different, a different sensation than my other skin there. Um, is that something that you talk with, with clients about is, just, I mean, it feels like a weird thing to just be like yeah. <laughs> touching that area, but it's important, right? Because I mean, you want to be able to touch it and feel pleasure, not pain. Correct. Right? Yeah. We do talk about a lot of things that necessarily wouldn't come up in normal conversation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but desensitization is huge. And, you know, I love talking about vibrators and some ways to introduce some mm. different sensations yeah, to that area. Idea. Yeah. Um, so many good things <laughs> to know. Is there anything else that you, um, really wanted to talk about today to, to maybe even give people like an idea of like, how do you find a, a pelvic floor therapist? If you're not, you know, obviously I'm going to be referring people to you <laughs> and who I'm working with in the area, but like, is that something that you would ask your doctor about if they would know someone or. Yeah. You could ask um, your doctor or your midwife. Um, there are other pelvic floor therapists in the area. Yeah. 
I, I don't know of any others that are doing home visits at this time, but you know, I may just not be aware. Yeah. So I would definitely ask your provider um, or just, you know, seek one out on your own. If, yeah. if you're not getting the answers you want from your provider, then, then advocate for yourself and, mm-hmm. and get out there and um, find one that works best with you and make sure it, that that person has a personality that you're comfortable with and having those conversations that, that can be difficult. Yeah. Cause that's personal stuff. You want to, I think that goes with any, any care provider. And I talk w- with people about that too. Like when I'm looking to, you know, work with someone um, or they're working, looking to work with me, like, like, you know, we're going to be getting really vulnerable. This is a vulnerable space. Postpartum is like, I don't know if it's, there's any other time that's so vulnerable in that, in those ways. Um, and like physically vulnerable too, because your body is, you know, doing a lot of different things that you wouldn't typically. So I think it's so important to have a team and even a birth team who you feel safe with and okay with to be vulnerable, because if you can't, then you're not going to get the best service and you're not going to get what you need to, I think, out of it. And that, so that's really important. And I, I think it's important that birthing persons know that that you don't have to have something that's dire yeah, and something that's really wrong to seek out pelvic floor therapy. Um, in other countries, you're automatically referred to a pelvic floor therapist after birth. Yeah. And sometimes that looks like one or maybe two sessions of just education on how to properly engage those muscles to set you up for success so that you aren't running into problems later in life. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to have a tear or, or pain, or, you know, maybe it just begs to have a single visit where someone can tell you that our things are looking okay. Yeah. And that this is yeah. how you can approach the rest of your, your life yeah. <laughs> and how to go about it in the right way. Yeah. Um, do you think that we, I've heard that about other countries that you're just automatically, you know, given a referral. Um, do you think that we would see that at some point, um, you know, I've heard advocates saying like, this should just be normal for everyone. Um, and I agree. I'm sure you do too. Do you think that we would get to that point or that we're how far away from that? Do you think we are (laughs) too far? (laughs) I I hope that would be the, the way we would go. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many factors in play, including the insurance companies and lobbyists that are working for those insurance companies. Yeah. Um, so I would like to think that we're heading in that direction, but I haven't necessarily seen that or any signs of it yet. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to get there. (laughs) And until then, I think it's just important for, like you said, for women to be, you know, educated around, you know, what's normal versus common. These are things that, you know, shouldn't be happening and are fixable and treatable. Um, and just advocating for themselves like this, you know, women deserve to have a quality life, even when they're a mother, just because you become a mother doesn't mean that your quality of life needs to go down. (laughs) Right. Um, and I think we kind of have that idea in some ways. Um, even as moms, you know, I, I, I still have those, those times and I'm working through health issues right now because I'm like, um, you're realizing that I let my quality of living go down and that's, you know, now I'm advocating for myself. Like that's not okay. Um, so I think that's, that's important to kind of keep that peace and, you know, be able to educate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You have to meet your own needs so that you can meet the needs of your child. Yeah. So yeah. Your, your need shouldn't take a backseat to theirs, which is easier said than done. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, it's hard, but that some things are not okay to let slide. <laughs> um, and yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm learning that myself right now. I think that might just be something that I'm just constantly learning and probably other people are too, but as long as you're, you know, learning and, and making progress. And I think that's the goal. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about all this. I think there, just talking about it and, you know, hearing, you know, again, what's normal versus common. I sound like a parrot at this point, but um, I think it's just so valuable. And I know that people are going to take a lot out of, um, you know, hearing what you're doing. Um, so tell people where they can find you. at. Sure. Um, peaceablepelvis.com, or you can find me on Instagram as well under the same handle.
Awesome. Cool. And we'll um, link that stuff in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Kate.